0: Welcome to another exciting episode of the New Book Network's African American Studies podcast. I am your host, Katrina Anderson. Today I am joined by Professor Viola Mueller, and we will discuss her new book, Escape to the City Fugitive Slaves in the Antebellum South. Professor Mueller is a postdoctoral researcher at the Bonn Center for Dependency and Slavery Studies in Germany. Dr. Mueller, thank you for joining me today
1: uh hi thanks so much for inviting me it's a real pleasure to be here today
0: yes i want to discuss your fascinating new book escape to the city so can you tell us a little bit more about the book
1: yes of course so the book uh, is about people who escaped slavery in the antebellum south Um, And it's about people who then went to cities in the south. So um, they stayed in slaveholding territory. Um, This is important, I think, because um, a lot has been written about fugitive slaves to the north, especially. um, Also to Mexico, um, increasingly, um, or newer books also deal with maroons in wilderness areas. Um, But fugitives in southern cities is a topic that has not really been covered in depth yet. Um, And uh, this book aims to show that in the urban South, men, women, and sometimes even children found shelter, found work, um, and found and made use of survival networks. So in these cities, they were taken in by the black urban communities. And one intervention besides the geographical focus on, on the urban south is this focus on the receiving communities. So on uh, those people who helped enslaved people in the cities. Um, and with this uh, intervention, I want to stress southern fugitivity as this collective action, as a collective resistance to slavery.
0: Okay, so I yeah, no, go ahead. I was about to say, um, you're focusing more of the on the collective resistance versus the individualized notion in some ways, but you're doing a parallel analysis of both. um
1: yes, so I want to show what it took individual people to flee and to get to cities and to make it there as um, as as fugitive slaves, but I also want to show how the cities themselves and the cities living in the, the people living in these cities, how they contributed to making to turning cities into welcoming spaces of refuge for runaways. So I chose four cities for this study and um, which are Baltimore, Richmond in Virginia, Charleston and um, New Orleans, and the the time period I look at is the is the antebellum era. So this time, uh, from the early nineteenth century up until, and um, the American Civil
0: War. I will say you did it very well. Um, you actually masterfully accomplished your task. Um we touched a little bit on why you selected fugitive slaves as your topic, because you were providing a different perspective, especially on those who actually remain in the South versus those that are going to the North. But how did you become interested in this topic?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, So I think studying fugitive slaves is actually a very, it's something that really caught me, I want to say. So, I mean, I'm in general interested in slavery, in historical slavery. Um, But I also see that many studies of slavery are very depressing or very difficult to write necessarily, of course. So I have... A lot of respect for colleagues who work on violence, you know, or punishment or the slave trade where um, it's so often about family separation, all these gruesome things that were just inherent part of slavery. And then fugitivity, by contrast, um, gives the historian the... So I appreciated a lot that I could... Stress, the hope and the courage and the agency, and defiance and resistance all the time. So these things, I believe, are also another accounts of of slavery, but they're perhaps not always that visible. And with with studying fugitive slaves, you can really focus on these things, and that um, that encouraged me a lot, and perhaps that made my job also a bit easier, maybe. So. How I became interested in fugitive slaves, I don't really know. Um, I already wrote my BA thesis on runaway slaves um, on Maroons in in Suriname. Um, But perhaps one answer could be that this issue of fleeing, of fleeing conditions of danger, of injustice, of hopelessness is also something that's currently so present in our world. Um, and there are very, very visible parallels, parallels to to that, that you see when you study um, people who escaped slavery.
0: That is true. I agree with that. I definitely agree with that. As you were working on this topic, what type of sources did you use for your analysis?
1: Yeah, um... I try to draw from as many sources as I possibly could. Um, I do want to name runaway slave advertisements first and foremost. So for those people who are not that familiar with, um, with uh, studying historical slavery, runaway slave advertisements were um, newspaper announcements that slaveholders placed in newspapers um, to look for um, enslaved people who had fled. So in this announcement, they would describe the people physically and very often also at um, either speculations or um, factual information about where these people would go or where they had been seen, for example. Um, and these are very, very important for this study. Um, Other very important sources include jail and police records and announcement by jailers, for example, because they provide concrete evidence of people, of enslaved people, of fugitive slaves actually being in these cities when they were taken up there, for example. Um, I also use different kinds of legal sources like court cases, autobiographies, travel accounts, you know, observations by outsiders, uh, local newspapers that covered what was generally going on in, in, in the cities, um, legislative ordinances to provide um, the, the, the legal context, and uh, political speeches, church registers, uh, city directories, you name it.
0: <laughs> I will say that from all of your sources you were able to weave them together masterfully to retell the narratives and the stories of the fugitive slaves and how they were able to survive um in a what we shall call a slave society during this period. Um, So I want to congratulate you on being able to pull all of that together. Now, as I was reading your introduction um, to your text, you mentioned migrant studies. Now, how has this topic helped uh, with your own topic?
1: Yeah, um, I think that's important. It's an important question on how i conceptualized the study um i think that pretty early in the project i realized that the society that i was studying the antebellum US south in the society enslavement was justified on basis of law um and I also want to point out that thousands of enslaved people could only escape slavery against the law, right? By breaking the law. Um, and those who stayed in the South, um, and this also makes the story so fundamentally different from slave flight to the North, uh, they remained within the jurisdiction of the very slave-holding society that stipulated there were slaves. Um, this means that their legal status did not change. Um, And this again means that the subsequent lives that these men and women built for themselves in Southern cities had likewise no basis in law. Um, And from this observation, I came to understand that in a way their presence in these cities was illegal, right? Um, And this was the point when I took the bridge to migration studies, um, because this brings Southern fugitive slaves so close to undocumented migrants today. And the fact that they lived somewhere without authorization, that actually they should not be there. And then with these parallels in mind, I began to... To, to design the study as if I would research refugees. So I asked, um, what it did it mean that these people had no papers, freedom papers, right? Or otherwise proof to show that they were not enslaved. So they could actually not uh, legally, officially prove that they were free. So um, why then did they go to southern cities? Um, this is also a lot about networks, just like when you when you when you research migrants, right? Who helped them? Um, why did they know uh, what they knew? Why were they able to go to a city in the first place and then where did they live? Where did they work? And why was it possible for them to stay in cities like Richmond, Baltimore, Charleston, and New Orleans. So how did all these other social groups in the cities react? to the newcomers.
0: Well, I would definitely say migrant studies it and helped your it helped your topic and i can see the parallels just as i was reading i thought about the legality or the illegality in this case of the fugitive slaves and the lives that you make and how you know as you're thinking about a parallel issue today especially here within the states you have um illegal immigrants that are coming in during this time and what you know, how society, how they are viewed in society, yet how they are still able to survive. So I definitely was able to see the parallels between the two with what you were doing.
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, I've, I was studying this from Europe, from, from Leiden in the Netherlands, where I did my PhD. And uh, this is very similar. The situation of undocumented migrants in Europe is definitely comparable to those in the U.S.,
0: Yes, I mean, it's. it was just eye-opening as I was reading this, and I could just, there was like this contemporary framework that was in my mind as I was reading your text. It was kind of like going back and forth, because I was just thinking about a lot of what's been happening, and you know, everything that you see in the news and how it plays out politically, and then you can kind of, in your mind, in some cases, go back and say, okay... You can't project back into the 19th century, but you can see comparable things happening during that time as to what yeah. was going on. Yeah, exactly. Um,
1: so I didn't... This is by no means a comparative study, but as you say, a lot of the questions I ask are informed by what's happening today around us. Right. It's
0: it's it's amazing. Um, you know, with as you were writing this, you definitely want to redefine what freedom means. Um, can you explain what that term means to you and how it relates to your text?
1: Yeah, this is a difficult question because probably a lot of questions about freedom are. <laughs> um, I With this book, I kind of try to go around freedom. So I wouldn't even say that I want to redefine freedom. Um, I see that, you know, concepts that are around like semi-freedom, quasi-freedom, conditional freedom or fragile freedom or all these in-between understandings, conceptualizations of freedom they all tell us something. Um, They tell us that people to whom these concepts apply, they're somewhere in between slavery and white man's freedom, um, as in civil and political rights. But it's sometimes a bit hard to see what this actually means. Um, And I wanted, or I tried to contribute something that's a bit more tangible um so studying fugitives in the south might be an ideal way because the first questions that you're the first question that you're confronted with is why did they not go north right and you can answer this question with geography and with physical distance when it's about New Orleans or Charleston, this works. You say, yeah, they were too far away to go to the north. But what about Baltimore then? It's so close to the northern border. So how do you explain that people went to Baltimore rather than uh, crossing the Mason-Dixon line? And here I would like to quote Joseph Miller, who wrote... um, that we need to view enslaved people more fully than, quote, as mechanically resisting the lack of freedom that the modern historian imagines as the primary privation that they endured, end of quote. So he says the primary privation. Um, So what I want to do with this book is to ask what else is there? What other privations did they endure And the fact that so many absconders from slavery stayed in the slaveholding South might mean that freedom or the way that we typically understand freedom was not on their minds as something, as a goal that was ever-present and all-encompassing. So by looking at fugitive slaves through a migration lens, Um, I don't want to redefine freedom. I want to leave it aside for a moment. Um, And this is something that um, uh, historian Seth Rockman emphasized when I talked to him about this, um, that we don't usually discuss if undocumented laborers in Los Angeles today are free or not, right? Right. We talk about their legal and economic insecurity, uh, their vulnerability, but also their resilience. And uh, so I chose to pay attention to, to these issues of being vulnerable to discretionary policing in the cities and of being susceptible to coercive labor. And I really try to avoid... I actually tried to avoid (laughs) defining freedom um, Yeah, in this book. I hope this makes
0: sense. It makes a lot of sense. And you did. You did actually avoid defining freedom in this book, or in this case, redefining freedom. You showed that instead of that binary of free, unfree, you were looking at more of the spaces that are in between that and what that meant to the actual fugitives, um, whether that's, as we would say, legal or non-legal means or what, whatever that can be. It had a different connotation. And you showed that, that it had a different connotation for them um, living their lives, their experiences, per se, um, worked very well. Now, in your book, you talk about from the 1790s to the 18th centuries, the changing nature of slavery. Um, can you discuss that in a little bit more detail and how these ideas of industrialization and the global market, the changes that that um, provides for the institution?
1: Yeah, yeah, thanks. Um, so, this time period, uh, 1790s to 1860, um, that's also known as the Antebellum Period, um, was a time um, in which um, slavery was abolished pretty much all around the U.S. South, um, while at the same time it became uh, tighter in the U.S. South and it expanded in the U.S. South. So slavery in this time really showed its adaptability to modern work relations, to industrial settings, and to capitalist labor markets. Um, When looking at the global market, uh, cotton rises as the commodity um, to where almost all the attention goes. Um, And the plantation economy is restructured to really cater to these global markets. Um slavery in the United States then expands to the south and uh, to the west and into new lands and new territories um, stolen from um, Native Americans. And slavery also grows uh, not only geographically, but also the number of enslaved people um, grow significantly. So by the eve of the Civil War, almost four million um, people are held in slavery in the United States, and um, industrialization becomes uh, especially important uh, when it's uh, when it's about urban slavery. Um, so, urban slavery o- uh, obviously plays an important role for this for this story. And there had always been urban slaves in the United States. Think of domestic service, think of construction work, maintenance, uh, cleaning, transportation. Um, But if we, for example, look at Richmond, um, we see that enslaved people, and this is men and women, and um, They are also now employed in the tobacco factories of Richmond, in the flour mills, and the warehouses, and instead of people be- really become part of, of Richmond's but also of other southern cities' industrialization processes.
0: Wow. You know, and it's it's just from my own studying of slavery myself as a 19th century scholar, you really don't, for the most part, you don't focus as much on the industrialization of the South, which I want to commend you on. It's more about, you know, you have this idea, this concept of the South in many ways being frozen in time, you know, as this plantation economy that's going on. And you know, especially as an undergrad, I remember the only thing you really focused on was that versus talking about all of the changes that's happening during the South, that the South is not this backwards per se society that's more rural versus urbanized. There's kind of that dichotomy that happens.
1: Yeah, I think these understandings sometimes emerge when you do comparisons right you compare the south to the north and then then this is the picture that you get but um only studying the north it's, uh, the south I'm sorry it's it's pretty clear that there's substantial uh urbanization and industrialization going on i, I was... also i'm sorry
0: no no i was going to say that's one thing that i would say <laughs> another thing i can't just say one thing that you did well in this book but this is another thing that you did was able to tease out and really highlight that the south is actually changing it's evolving it's not stuck like in this capsule where it's not moving it's static no you showed the dynamic nature of what's happening during this period so but go ahead um, yes, Professor no, thank
1: you for this. um i was just going to say that it, it I thought it was really helpful, and I would recommend uh, others to look at photographs of this time, um, because the pho- pho- photography is actually a thing from the mid nineteenth century on, and it brings us much closer uh, to to the place that we study. And in these photographs, it's just. Impossible not to see that we are talking about actual cities, uh, proper cities, large cities with large buildings, with warehouses, with industries. Um, that's sometimes sometimes a photograph is more immediate than a, a painting or an engraving can be. Um, so, for example, I I chose one for the cover of the book, and um, to really show that. These are not towns, you know, these are cities, as you say. Right.
0: And they are. I mean, it's, it's, I don't know. And this being is that you are international. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Gone with the Wind. That's kind of like this. Yes. So the seminal kind of Southern movie that's out there. Um, And you have this, you know, most people, especially Southerners, um, they oftentimes refer to that movie, and you just get this image. And as you say, a picture, a photograph, just looking, you do see that this is is an urban environment. You're right; it's not a town; it's an urban city. This is where they are, and I like that. I really, really like that. Um, now, all of these changes that we're talking about—industrialization, urbanization in the city—how does that impact both? The positive and the negative for slave life that's going on during this time. What are those changes doing for the enslaved population during this period?
1: Yeah, this is a very important part of um, of explaining how and why so many people um, decided to flee slavery. Um, so. First, I would like to say that slave life was always always disrupted, right? So enslaved people could never live without um, the fear of being brutalized, of being raped, of being sold or otherwise treated in a way that would disrupt their day-to-day, put them in unease, um, and really impact their lives. Um, That being said, there are a number of issues that do make 19th century slavery different from colonial slavery. So um, I already said that because American slavery um, expanded and moved into the southwestern regions, these new territories, Um, the domestic slave trade to these regions um, intensified. So uh, you have to imagine that um, the transatlantic slave trade um, became abolished and then the new territories, the the labor demand of these new territories territories was mostly uh, met by um, selling enslaved people from the Upper South Uh, regions down into the new lands. And this this meant that the danger of being separated from family and from loved ones um, really increases for enslaved people during this time. And forced migration um, during this time means for almost a million people. And so historians really largely agree on this um, number of almost a million um, uh, foremost very young people that they uh, were um, removed from what they knew as home they were removed from their uh, families and friends they had to get to used to a new climate, to new ways of very hard work and um, just essentially to new lives um, and perhaps most important to the story that Um, that I am to tell um, a massive change was that legal ways of gaining freedom shrank. And this had to do everything with the curtailment of manumission. So um, let me briefly explain this. Um, Manumission, for those who are not that familiar with with slavery, means um, an official and legal way Of releasing somebody from slavery, right? And uh, while this had for a long time been a right of slaveholders, so this was legally backed up, from the early 19th century onwards, this legal avenue uh, was not as broadly accessible anymore. Um, So many southern states, actually one after the other, began to curtail. Manumissions. And they began to make it so complicated um, that uh, it became too much of an obstacle for slaveholders or too expensive or too complex bureaucratically. Um, so this is really important um, because enslaved people in the South, they see that slavery is abolished in the North, right? In the same country. And initially they had hopes and justified hopes that slavery could also be abolished where they lived in the South. But then the picture changes, um, cotton comes up, slaveholders push for this territorial expansion that I just mentioned, and suddenly all these hopes are in tatters. And then to make things worse, manumission, practically the only legal way out gets abolished. Instead of slavery, manubition gets abolished, um, largely at least.
0: Wow. I mean, and it's it is so interesting hearing that and saying that because you're right. In the North, you have these, you have 1790s. You've got the start of gradual emancipation. Yes, it is a gradual emancipation. Very rarely did it happen like outright, like, okay, you're free, but there is a process whereby this is occurring in the North and in the South, they're actually constricting um, avenues to freedom during this period. When so, And so you can imagine, as one would say, as this is happening, the thoughts that are going on among the slave population, because of course, they're around, many of them in close contact, hearing everything that is happening and having exposure to what is going on. Yet, in some ways, um, how do we get the emergence of a free Black population in the South? How is that occurring? You mentioned the manumissions. They're closing, but we are still having that emergence of that population.
1: Yeah, thanks for that. Thanks for um, going to step back. Um, so in order to tackle this more chronologically, um, manumission schemes were more uh, open and, and more broadly accessible after the Revolutionary War, right? Um so this was actually the time uh, when, uh, slavery was in the process of being abolished in the north, as you just said um, and the same kind of currents um, produced large numbers of individual manumission schemes in regions such as the, such as the, the upper south um, And um, this gave, the free black population actually this initial push to eventually be able to sustain itself. And um, so, in this time, uh, in the aftermath of the American Revolution, enslaved people made use of this turbulent environment to press for manumission and to press their owners for um, for being um, relieved released from slavery or they were able to purchase their own freedom or their their loved one's freedom. So uh, places like um, Virginia, North Carolina, and Maryland, um, they saw significant individual manumissions in that time. And then (laughs) um, by around 1810, this door closes again, right? Right. Um, 1810 is more or less this, this, this point in time when um, when white Americans recommitted to slavery um, because of cotton, but not only, also because they were afraid and panicky of the, the, the growing free black population, um, and then they curtailed manumissions, mostly legally. Um, depending on the state, they make it so complicated uh, to manumit a slave, or as I said, uh, it's coupled to the payment of, of large amounts of money. Um, and then this, this, what I call a legal door, really, really closes. But by 1810, we have already reached that point where about 10% of people of African descent in the Upper South are already free. And in places like South Carolina and Georgia, where less free Black people live, um, their numbers still also um, almost triple between 1790 and 1810. Um, So this is actually where the story begins, right? When the free Black population is able to sustain itself um, and to grow... um, um, Um,
0: autonomously. Well, you know, it's interesting. We've got like this. There are so many things that are happening during this period, 1790s, 1860s. You know, you've got these revolutions. Well, in our case, the American Revolution is occurring. You've got um, had previously occurred. We're into the early republic here. You've got gradual emancipation going on in this. North, you've got some manumissions in the South by 1810. You've got, as you say, this it's this shift. Cotton becomes once again, because of cotton, it becomes slavery, reassumes its importance to all things, especially in Southern life. But You're right. This is where the story begins because we've got, once again, you've got fugitives and who in this case, in this environment, especially that you are looking at, who becomes the new fugitives and how does this challenge the historiography? And we've spoken a little bit about it as to, you know, they're in the South and they're staying in the South, but who are these new fugitives that you're seeing during this period?
1: Yeah, thanks for this. So first of all, to perhaps nuance what sounds like a perhaps too optimistic picture. You know, I I just said that um, um, uh, the the numbers of fugitive slaves increased, but we still have to um, bear in mind that the overwhelming majority of enslaved people had no chance to escape slavery, like really no chance. Um, So think of Solomon Northup, who uh, many people know because of his book, 12 Years a Slave. He is the rule, not the exception. He tried 12 years to escape and he did not succeed. And yet... um, the numbers of fugitive slaves in the antebellum era was substantial. And it was um, substantial to an extent that we cannot explain it merely by uh, the growing numbers of people in slavery, right? So um, chapter two of my book um, is actually uh, entitled The Making of the New Fugitive Slaves because it explores who these people were. And what I found is that features that we typically attribute to fugitive slaves, foremost being a man and being skilled in terms of professional skills, um, these features were not determinative of who ran away. Instead, um, I found that it was about physical mobility. It was about um, autonomy, And it was about exposure to other people who were not slaves or slaveholders. And because all of this mobility, autonomy and exposure, this created opportunities for enslaved people. Um, And most important was a knowledge and an understanding of the broader world. So the broader world of the South, but still the broader world around these people and working away or working remotely from one's master or mistress was really important Um, during this time a growing number of enslaved people worked as hired slaves um, which meant that someone else rented their their labor power right this broadened horizons enslaved people also used new infrastructure um, if they were personal servants, for example, they could travel with their owners in steamboats and later railroads. This broadened horizons too. And then uh, perhaps, ironically, even um, being forcibly sold away also broadened horizons, right? So I think there is actually a lot to say about who these new fugitive slaves were. Um, but perhaps the most insightful observation is about gender. Um, so, my yes. sources, right? this is what you what you aimed at. <laughs> so, my sources show that um, not necessarily skills, but actually mobility was the most useful precondition for waging an escape attempt and um in these sources then there are uh there, there's a woman who carried milk to Richmond right there are several men who were drivers errand boys woodcutters or vendors of all sorts or there were women who sold uh produce in urban markets women who were washerwomen so washerwomen Um, spent years delivering clothes to all sorts of places across the city, for example. And women fugitives were also seamstresses or cooks or servants. So the point is that people with expertise and experience often worked under less supervision than other slaves. And they were regularly sent out to or rented out to other places. And thereby, they got to know new places and new people within the South. Um, And with this, I can show that fugitive slaves in southern cities included more women than we previously thought when thinking about runaways. So very likely, women made up about one-third of southern urban runaways, which is much higher than those who went to the north, and it's much, much higher than those who went to Mexico. So um, to come back to your question and your question about what is new um, about the new fugitive slave, um, then I would say uh, new about this is that um, so many enslaved people could gain such an autonomy and mobility um, in the first place by the new works and occupations that they that they did in the in the antebellum era.
0: Yes. All I can say at this moment is yes, yes, yes. And your point about more women. And as a person who studies black women's history, it was so nice to have the more women placed in there and being able to find those women, that they exist. And you're right, they were able, because of their opportunities, their experiences, their mobility, able to become part of the fugitive slave population during this Um, moment in time and you know previous historians there's always been that debate as to why there were more men versus women fleeing slavery but that's in the debate as you go northward you know why why are you making that journey why would women not I would should say make that journey and what were the ties and why um physicality or emotional issues ties to children, why would they stay? Whereas you're able to have a completely different perspective that is able to encompass women during this time. Um, and they are actually fleeing slavery, and they but they're choosing to remain in the South.
1: Yes, and the South provides them with Particular opportunities that they might not have in, say, the North. So, Southern cities are actually um, characterized by a disproportionately large share of Black women. So, just mathematically speaking, um, female runaways had a better chance of camouflaging within the free Black population. Um, also the work that they commonly did, you know, what I said, uh, laundry or seamstressing um, or domestic work um, provided them with a better cover than male work. Men who more often worked on the streets or uh, at the docks, um, whereas women could really. So men were much more exposed in the urban environment when it came to work. And uh, for women, it might have been easier to to become invisible.
0: Right. Um, now, can you give us an example of, per se, a male fugitive and a female fugitive? Uh, one I have in mind for a female is Fanny because I really liked her story. I really, really.
1: Yeah, Fanny. Fanny is the is the opening of of one of my chapters, and Fanny is really the. Ideal example of an enslaved woman with a breathtaking horizon. So in 1856, she was about 26 years old, and her master cal- called her Frances. Um, and Fanny, as she called herself, um, Fanny decided to to leave him. Um and actually there's a lot that we could discuss about Fanny, but most striking for for what we are discussing right now, is that she lived in um, South Carolina, where she ran away, but she was raised in North Carolina, and she had lately lived in Florida, and now her master looked for her in Charleston. And he also says that she had actually been seen in Charleston throughout the previous three or four months, um, and the slaveholder also only um, placed the runaway slave advertisement in the newspaper 10 months after Fanny had, had absconded. So there is another discussion in the book about who ends up in runaway slave advertisements, and I also want to make um, the claim that it's mostly very valuable um, enslaved men, who, um, who, for whom runaway slave advertisements are written in the first place, which again distorts our prospect or our, our perception of of how many women were part of the um, of the fugitive population. Um, but back to Fanny, um, it is unfortunately not clear what her exact work consisted of. But it is clear that she had traveled widely and that she must have been able to forge her own, her personal contacts with people who could turn out to be allies, right? Um, So from the very limited information um, in the Runaway Slave Advertisement, um, we can actually extract all this information about about her horizons and about her possible connections.
0: Wow. She was I as I was reading I really, really enjoyed Fanny and her experiences and her mobility and how much she is moving around at this point in time. She's not confined to one space. She's moving quite a bit. Um and as you say, her master, it was ten months before the notice went in yeah. that he's actually looking for her.
1: Yeah. And also only like this is, this is so striking. He writes in the Runaway Slave advertisement that Fanny had been seen in Charleston during the previous three or four months. So it seems that he tried three or four months to get hold of her in Charleston, but he fails. And then he decides to issue an announcement in the newspaper. This is also something that we should really think about, right? That very likely the majority of Runaway Slaves never end up in runaway slave advertisements. Right.
0: Wow. That is a lot. Now, we've we've kind of hit on the topic, but these men and women, like Franny, they opt to stay in the South. Why is that?
1: Hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, partly we already talked about it. Um, Let me also say that um, most fugitives in a given city, in these four cities that I studied, they were from nearby. So this means that most of them stayed close to home, right? Home as the place that they knew and where their loved ones were. Um, and when comparing this to flight to the north or um, to flight over very long distances, um, this means that these people, or at least some of them, could maintain ties to their family and loved ones. Um, two people who perhaps stayed behind on a plantation, two family members who lived in the same city or nearby so, in a way, staying in the South was less definite, right? It was less of a definite rupture from your previous life. And uh, I, I think th- this is the most important motivation. There are also other reasons um, um, when it comes to, to jobs, to work, the opportunities were were actually better in the south for um, people of African descent, um, and although they could not be legally enslaved in the north, there was also racism and discrimination in the north, and life was really hard in the north too.
0: That is very very true, and a point that often, you know, gets obscured is how difficult life is for. Um, fugitive slaves in northern society. Um, It's not as soon as you cross, as we should say, that Mason-Dixon line, you've entered this space where you are free. You're still a fugitive, and you're a fugitive living in a northern society that, as you mentioned, there was a lot of racism that was going on during this period, Um, despite the ideas of the Abolitionist movement that's going on during this time, the actual experiences of the fugitive slaves—it's quite different. Um, and I definitely think you're right. Having those close ties to family um, and friends, a community that would definitely inspire one to remain um, in Southern society during this period—it's more—it's the known versus the unknown. Also, yes, yes, I, that plays that also plays
1: a. An important role and um, a lot of fugitives who went to southern cities they they had been there before or at least they knew somebody there and now you can ask yourself how many enslaved southerners knew somebody in the north you know it was as you say it is great unknown it's very frightening to 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 travel to such a place
0: right it's it's, a, it's very disconcerting um, just to think about that because first, you are a fugitive um, and who to trust, who do you know? Whereas in your known environment, yes. there are opportunities that you're able to take advantage of, that you're aware of, a community, as one would say, that can be more opening to you. In a, per se, now, since you mentioned we have a free Black population in the South that you know versus trying to... Become involved in a free bi population that 's in the north that you don 't know um, exactly yeah. that's that 's that's, that's a very crucial issue that 's there now we 're talking so much about these spaces in the south. Um, what are these spaces of refuge and you mentioned and i 'm going to put these together because um, we can talk about them. Um, the questions together, the Spaces of Refuge, also you have the terms alternative geographies and black geographies. How does all that come together? Yeah,
1: yeah, thanks for this. Um, So in the book, I call Spaces of Refuge spaces that enable fugitives to navigate southern cities without being taken up. Um, without causing attention, really. And these spaces are partly physical. So, for example, certain places within cities like neighborhoods or or suburbs. So think of Fells Point in Baltimore or Charleston Neck um, or Treme in in New Orleans. Um, But spaces... Um, are also constructed by, by the interplay of different actors or different groups. So fugitives and their allies um, and their receiving societies, they craft these spaces deliberately, right? They want to uh, carve out spaces where these fugitives can, uh, can, can go and, um, and, 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 and stay and live. Um, But actually, southern society as a whole, they all contribute to grafting these spaces. Slaveholders, they are unable to prevent flight. Um, Not always, obviously, but um, substantially. They are unable to prevent large numbers of enslaved people from escaping. Um, Local authorities... um, they oftentimes did not attribute sufficient importance to to, to this issue. So uh, we constantly see that um, uh, states enact legislation to prevent um, slaves from absconding or at least prevent people from helping slaves abscond or... Um, They enact uh, legislation about how a municipality should behave or should tackle um, runaways, Um, but then depending on the place, it was up to local authorities to execute the laws, right? And uh, in a lot of these places, uh, what I actually found out was that uh, police was not the most eager to hunt after runaway slaves. Um another actor are urban employers. They actually benefited from runaway slaves in their cities. And they were interested in a diverse workforce um, that was um, flexible, that was powerless um, and that they could pay discount wages. Um, and then there was the the white urban middle classes, the growing white urban middle classes, who were actually driven by a desire to distinguish themselves from poor people. So white people, those who could afford it, they constructed again physical places um, where they could live. Uh, segregated from poor people and from black people, so they moved out from certain areas of the cities um, and into new areas um, where they could be um, amongst themselves. And this also supported the invisibility of people who should not be there. So there's this, it's really this interplay of of the of different urban groups um, who make it possible for fugitive slaves to to stay in cities and successfully carve out um, spaces of refuge there.
0: Right. And it also allows these fugitives to be, to remain visible in the cities because of all the interplay that you mentioned, you have these fugitives who are, they're not hiding in, in a, closet or in an attic as the case was with Harriet Japus. they're actually out and about walking around. They are seen yet in many ways unseen.
1: Yeah, exactly. They they walk the streets but in a way they are they're camouflaged, right? They don't right. raise attention. Um, And the reason is because the majority of uh, of urban residents is turning a blind eye because they either don't care or because they benefit from
0: this. Right. Now, we've talked about a lot of this, but what role did other free Blacks per se? And we mentioned, they turned. you mentioned, you know, they turned a blind eye to didn't care, but were with the free Blacks who are already there, other Blacks who are living there, um, how did they assist in some ways or not assist um, the fugitive population that's around?
1: Mm -hmm. So when I began this study, I actually expected to find more cases of betrayal, let's say. I expected to find um, um, black people... Um, calling on fugitive slaves and, you know, betraying them to police or authorities or slaveholders. And I was very surprised that I really only found a handful of these cases. Um, So I really got the impression that this fugitive slave experience in southern cities was so successful because there was a large solidarity among the the black community in these cities or the black communities in these cities. Um, So this is something that I found very striking, let's say, Um, that uh, so, so first of all, it was, the presence of black people in the first place that provided the receiving society, right? Spaces where runaway slaves could um, could integrate, where they could live, where they could work, but also socialize. Um, but then a lot of these people must also have been very active supporters um, and they must have known about the background of runaway slaves. Or, you know, um, knowing that in the 19th century, a lot of enslaved people had actually or counted free people to their family members. So, you you know this, um, a lot of black families actually consisted of free and enslaved family members. Um, so... I don't think it's really possible to make a sharp distinction between the interests of enslaved people and the interests of free black people. I think for, for a great many black people in the South, um, their, their interests were the same, regardless whether they were free or enslaved. They were they wanted slavery gone, you know, and helping a runaway um, stay undetected was a way of resisting slavery, of defying slavery. Um, So um, this story would not exist without um, black black city city dwellers. I mean, in the book, there are also a few white people who supported runaways, um, but um they were not structural there were not structural supporters of runaway slaves
0: okay okay that makes sense Now we've kind of touched on it and we've kind of gone around it in many ways in your research were there some cities that were more welcoming than others that you would say were there some who were just like okay it's an open door policy versus those that were more closed off Um, so
1: there were some cities, um, that made it, let's say, easier for runaway slaves. Um, and these were economically thriving and demographically expanding cities. So I studied four cities, as I said, but this is not really a comparative study. It's more that I try to identify elements, um, to paint a comprehensive picture of, um, how spaces of refuge were created in Southern cities. Um, so um, urban labor markets um, became increasingly obsessed with, um, with the diverse, with the cheap and with the flexible workforce, as I as I just said. And um, urban labor markets in, turn, in return offered anonymity and non-apprehension, right? So, I think it's really important not to underestimate this economic dimension of, of this story. So from the places that I studied, um, Baltimore and New Orleans probably um, received most fugitive slaves. And this was not only because of their size, um, but also because slaveholders were never that powerful in Baltimore, Right. Well, Baltimore doesn't have this long history of of slavery like uh, like like Annapolis, let's say. Um, and then New Orleans was um, was for many years divided into three municipalities because of ethnic divides between um, Anglo and francophone um, residents. Um, and this uh, this this the vision of the city produced, Um, actually split um, responsibilities um, um, politically speaking so different parts of the cities were under different jurisdiction and then you know police and night watch they were they were divided and um, there was really this 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 feeling of of a of, of a split responsibility and um, um, and the city was just basically not really under, under tight control, let's say. Um, Charleston then um, made it the hardest for fugitive slaves, I would say. So Charleston by then was really only this part on the peninsula, what is today the old town. Um, and because it was such a uh, limited space, it was relatively easy to control um, and slaveholders. So the big planters of South South Carolina, they actually lived in Charleston and they took racial control very seriously. So Charleston is, 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 is almost the only place where um, we see in the sources that police really take their job of hunting runaways seriously and in in other cities um they are much more um relaxed with this i i i almost want to say okay
0: yes i think with um south carolina you know going back to its origins um especially you know after the caribbean experiences of slavery under the british empire slash French with um, Saint-Domingue, you know, I guess with Charleston, they're taking a more hands-on approach um, so that the enslaved population doesn't have as much freedom um, to be able to engage in um, what we would call resistant subversive behaviors, Um, I would think that may be one of the reasons as to why they have that control and they're enforcing it so harshly um, during this period. Um, But as you say, when I think about New Orleans, it is, it's that New Orleans always comes out as a different experience, especially when you're looking many respects slavery, just because of, as you mentioned, the different imperial powers that controlled it and, you know, how that shaped both the experiences of the enslaved and the, quote unquote, free populations, because there's just so much diversity that's within that environment. Um, So I can see why it would make it definitely more open and receptive.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and I mean this is really a matter of priority, what matters most to the elites. Um, in Charleston, policing the city that strictly cost a lot of money, um, a lot of money, and not all cities were either willing or capable of of of, of financing this. Um, so, um, yeah, as I said, um, th- this is also a matter of um, who lives there like Charleston had one of the highest um, percentages or, or shares of of enslaved people um, whereas in in New Orleans um, the numbers of enslaved people and the numbers of free black people were more or less the same um, and this also meant for for fugitive slaves to adapt their strategies right so those who went to Charleston a lot of them actually pretended to be hired slaves they pretended to be sent by their masters or mistresses to look for for work, whereas in Baltimore, where um, very few people were actually enslaved, nobody would think of that. Like, all the fugitives who went to Baltimore tried to pass as free. I guess I should have said this earlier um, um, during this interview that, um, that, yeah, most fugitives tried to pass as as part of the free black population but sometimes it really made sense made sense for them to 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 change the strategies and to pretend to be a slave. Yeah.
0: That's 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 very very you know it's very smart and it's very being able to also know your environment and yes. what will work within that environment. It's, it's a situational.
1: Realistic. Yeah, it's very it, it Tells of very good observations. Um, these people really knew the world that they were living in.
0: Right. And how that they could maintain being able to live on their own, and what worked in what environment would not necessarily work in a different one. Yes, they were very yes. attuned to what worked best. So yeah. I think they, you know, it has to. They have to be given credit for that because they were able to survive and thrive, not just survive, but in some cases thrive, um, in their experiences. So, Professor Mueller, I want to ask you what do you want readers to take away from the book?
1: So, I would be very happy (laughs) if readers uh, would take away that resistance does not only occur when it's very visible, right? And when it ends up in the historical record. So, in, in this case, fugitive slaves in the urban South resistance can be very active, um, for example, when it's about harboring a fugitive slave um, or, or being a fugitive slave, obviously, but it can also simply be turning a blind eye, as I said, or being part of the receiving community and taking somebody in. Mm. So coming back to the issue of collective resistance that I think the story really brings to the fore, um, this means that black southerners, uh, black residents of southern cities were at the forefront of defying slavery, right? During the entire Antebellum era, it was not just those in the north, um, who ended up um, uh, being covered in the newspapers but it was these hundreds of thousands of uh, fugitives and their allies in southern cities who every day dealt out a stroke to slavery and to slaveholders um, and and proved that a different way was possible a different way of living was possible for them I guess this is uh, yeah, this, this is something that I find um, very meaningful.
0: I would agree with that analysis wholeheartedly. So I want to say thank you, Professor Mueller, for joining me today to discuss your fabulous new book, Escape to the City, Fugitive Slaves in the Antebellum South. Listeners, please go out and pick up a copy. I can assure you that what you will learn about these lives of these men and women who were able to flee slavery, yet be able to create a new life for themselves within the urban South. There are stories, their memories will stick with you, and you will learn as more, as Professor Mueller mentioned, about how these men and women who often go overlooked were able to hit back at the institution of slavery. So listeners, please go out and pick up a copy of this book. Thank you, Professor Mueller, for joining me today. Um, It was great being able to talk with you about this book. Um, So listeners, thank you so much.
1: I hope I answered most of the questions as some perhaps I didn't, but it was a great pleasure talking to you.